self-motivating factors get nurtured or squelched, depending on how much we carrot and stick kids to do what we want them to do, rather than enable them to spark their own motivation internally, which as you know, lasts a lot longer, persists over time, and ultimately brings anyone, whether you're an athlete or a musician or an artist or a business person to success, because they have that drive internally Welcome back to The Stage, the official performing arts podcast of the NFHS. I'm your host, Ken Burke, and our guest star today is Fran Kick. Fran is an author, a professional speaker, and he goes around the world advocating for music and so many more things uh, that I know we'll touch on today. But Fran, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Ken, thanks for having me. It's a treat to be here. I am very blessed, very grateful. Glad we could have this time together. Yeah, me too. Me too. So as we get started today, I want to ask you the same question that we ask everybody that that comes on right off the bat. As a child, what did you want to be when you grew up and how did you get to where you are now? Well, my very earliest memories was probably young elementary level. And we used to play with the neighborhood kids in the yard. There was a field across the street. And I always ended up having the nursery planting stuff. And so I always thought it'd be fun to be a nursery or grow trees or be a landscape design type person. But as I got older, um, I fell into what lots of people do. I saw what my dad did as a mechanical engineer at General Motors and thought, wow, that's a pretty cool job. And I don't have to be outside in the elements all the time. So maybe that's a better gig. Um, And I thought that for a long time until uh, almost my senior year, it was my senior year in high school, when I had a 13% in calculus. And that was sort of the sign that maybe engineering isn't for me. (laughs) So I decided, you know, I really liked music. And uh, my band director at the time actually said, you ever consider about going into music, education, teaching? You're so good at that. And so that's where it started. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a crazy story. And I think I already know the answer to this question I'm about to ask. But what was your favorite activity in high school or, you know, growing up and how formative was that for you now? Yeah, I think um, starting in the fifth grade when I first started playing the trombone all the way through high school into college, music and band uh, was the draw. Uh, the marching band in particular because it enabled me to serve as a drum major for a couple of years and organizing lots of people. And I just thought that was really cool to help make a big operation happen like that. Uh, the jazz ensemble was a real strong influence in my life because I loved the concept of improvisation and, and making things up with other people and creating it on the spot. I thought that was really cool. And the last two years in high school, I actually did the musical theater uh, events in at the high school and found that to be exciting because it was singing and performing and working with lots of people and doing a little improv too. So that those are the biggest influences in my life. Why did you, I, I know you, you were in uh, the teaching and education business for a while. Why did you decide to leave the education field and pursue a career as a speaker and advocate for music? Why, what, did something happen in your life that you were like, hey, maybe this is the route I want to go now? Yeah, like many people say in life, it was an accident, kind of. Um, I was teaching at Centerville High School with Wayne Markworth. Um, I had put myself through undergraduate school writing drill designs for high school marching bands across the Midwest and ended up doing that at Centerville, had some success teaching, ended up getting married to Judy, and we had the proverbial five-year plan that, you know, 
I'd finished my master's degree before we started a family. And so about year four, Judy said, um, hey, remember, you were going to have that master's degree finished. And I said, yes, yes, I will. And the only way to do it was to take a leave of absence for one year from teaching so that I could go full time on graduate courses and get it done. And unfortunately, it was an unpaid leave of absence from teaching. And uh, Judy said, hey, I love you lots, but... And so a lot of people through the years had said, boy, I wish you could speak at our camp or I wish you could do our college orientation or do our leadership retreat. And I never could because I was too busy teaching. And so I called those folks up and said, hey, I'm doing my graduate work and I have time to do that now. And so I had been able to book a number of events, speaking in retreats and programs during that year I was finishing up my graduate degree. And it was like a sign, you know, like maybe I should keep doing this. And a friend of mine who was playing drums on a cruise ship actually took my job for the year temporarily. And he liked the job and they liked him. And I already had a number of clients saying, we want you to come back next year and speak again. And so that was the first moment where I realized, you know, maybe I should have some impact beyond just this school system where I'm teaching and see what happens. And so that was the beginning of uh, this mission that I've been on ever since. Mm. Wow. How do you think teaching prepared you for, for your position now? Do you think like it, it helps you because, you know, you're interactive with children and, you know, you get to talk with students all over the world. How, how do you think that your teaching and interactive teaching approach has helped you through your public speaking and motivational speaking? Well, the combination of getting my graduate degree in educational psychology, which was something that kind of forced me to look at how kids learn, how people learn, how we get engaged. Um, and I had always been fascinated with the fact that it wasn't, you know, there are teachers in your life that teach music first and then kids. And there are some teachers who teach kids first and then music. And you could probably make the same case with sports, right? Some coaches are coaching the sport first, then kids, and some coaches are coaching the kids first, then the sport. And you know the trick is to do both. And so that's what really got me more excited about how do we get kids and people in general engaged in learning and motivating themselves and leading rather than being dependent on someone else doing it for them or to them. And since I had been a music educator and used music as, a, as an excuse, really, to bring people together in a large organization and make something happen, that interactivity was built into it all along. And most music and theater and sports coaches and teachers know that. It's the math and the English and, you know, that they, they see content we need to cover and then assess it and sometimes aren't as hardwired into that interactivity as maybe the arts are or sports. So that certainly motivated me or inspired me to create more of an interactive and engaging presentation. So to this day, I do not use PowerPoint at all. I, I just feel like that's a, a tool that other people can use. But if you're going to come to a presentation and be engaged, the last thing I want you to do is stare at a screen and read words that I'm repeating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. And yeah, like you mentioned, your interactive approach is so... It can be so helpful for a lot of students. And I, you know, I participated in one actually a couple of weeks ago at our performing arts conference. How did you come up with all of these interactive approaches? And you, you know, your, I don't even know how to explain it, but if you, if you're listening, you got to go check them out because the resources and the lessons that are, that Fran has on his website and uh, that he's taught around the world is so great. But where did you, where'd you come up with that? 
Well, I had a, a ton of great mentors and exemplars who captured my attention early on in the speaking business because they were more than just a speech. They were actually engaging people and interacting with them. And so even as far back as Zig Ziglar, who's no longer with us, you know, he would do a simple exercise with a clap game that just sparked something that I thought, you know, I bet kids would really be into this and I could milk it and, and do it a lot longer and f a greater extent. And it would reinforce the message I'm trying to make. And those kinds of activities, like the one you saw in Denver at the Performing Arts, you know, it's the idea of getting people engaged with the content or the experience so that their perception is, I'm figuring this out for myself, rather than someone is telling me what to do and when to do it. And from a leadership development point of view, I think that's one of the downsides a lot of times in youth activities is we say we want to develop student leadership, but we really want them to just follow our directions better. And that's okay. Followership's an important role, but developing leadership requires that kids pay attention and respond appropriately and get more involved in what's going on so they can make something happen rather than being told what to do and, and when to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I could see, I could see how that approach is. It's so useful for a lot of students because, you know, they're used to sitting at a desk and being lectured to all day and having an interactive approach that you can actually do things and, you know, clap your hands, do whatever you want is so, it can be so changing, life-changing for a lot of kids. But I love that you mentioned Zig Ziglar and people that have helped you and motivated you throughout your career. What, are there any specific examples or specific people that have that have helped you on your path to success and your path to being a speaker? Well, I've crossed paths with so many different people that I would leave a lot of them out if I started a list. Um, but there is an organization called the National Speakers Association. And believe it or not, there's an association for everything in this world. And so, you know, those folks are many mentors who've helped not only with the presentation side, but a lot with the how to run a business side and make this on your own without a huge staff of people. Because that was one of the goals early on in my career. I didn't want to have any employees I, because I saw so many people who were out there speaking so they could pay the payroll of a staff of people back home answering the phones and doing that. And I thought, you know, I'm going to be setting this up just so it's me, a solo practitioner, and I can make this happen without lots of employees. Um, and so that was one of the early goals that I had. And so I found mentors who were doing that. And so um, Steve Miller is a great example uh, from Washington, uh, was a great influence early on. Um, Tim Lotzenheiser from the music side of things was an early mentor of mine. And we actually traveled together and spoke together for a number of years uh, with his workshops at Attitude Concepts for today. And then all the, the master teachers and presenters that are at events that I've crossed path with, whether it be like the National Association for Middle School uh, Education uh, when I first met Dan Pink, and he's continued to be an inspiration and an example of, of how you can reach people with thoughtful insights that's grounded in science and reality, but yet accessible to people so that they understand it and get it faster. So we've obviously talked about you speaking and you know going around the world, but you're also an author too, like I mentioned. What was your reasoning behind writing some of the books that you've written, like Kick It In and What Makes Kids Kick. Uh, is there a central message that you wanted to convey uh, when, you, when you wrote both of these? Yeah, in fact, it's funny because the, the Kick It In book is, is almost like an activity 
bunch of pages that we used at summer camps over the years. And someone would say, you know, if you put all these together, I bet you'd have a book. And so <laughs> finally, we're like, yeah, let's just put these all together. And, and we latched into the social change model for leadership development and kind of use that as a framework to bring these activities to make some sense. And that has become one of the most popular things people use. If I'm speaking at an event with a bunch of students, the students also get a copy of the book and it has some take home value that they can keep reflecting and learning from. Um, and the video series of games that kick is the same thing. We used to do it with a colleague of mine, Frank Crockett, uh, who happens to be a direct descendant of a guy named Davey. Wow. <laughs> and uh, so we'd be at the summer camp and there'd be teachers sitting under trees writing down all the things we're saying to the kids as we're playing this game. And so we'd go over and ask them, hey, what are you doing? Like, oh, I want to play this game and I back to my school. And so I looked at Frank. I said, you know, if we were really smart, we'd video record these and give them a facilitator guide and sell them. And so that's what we ended up doing is putting our favorite six games on a series of DVDs. And now they're online as e-courses so that people can use them in their own settings. Um, the last one you mentioned was what makes kids kick. And that was an outgrowth um, with my engagement in the study of generations and how a pattern of generations influences things in our world. And I noticed that many times student leadership development material was simply watered down corporate stuff. And so while it resonated with the adults who were using it, it wasn't really developmentally appropriate for the kids. And so what I decided to do is say, okay, I'm gonna take what is motivating this generation of students that I've been working with for so long and try to figure out if there is a pattern in the generational profile that they're creating and how those self-motivating factors get nurtured or squelched, depending on how much we carrot and stick kids to do what we want them to do, rather than enable them to spark their own motivation internally, which as you know, lasts a lot longer, persists over time, and ultimately brings anyone, whether you're an athlete or a musician or an artist or a business person to success, because they have that drive internally rather than being dependent on someone or something else externally to keep them in the game or keep them motivated or keep them excited. Um, and so that's what that series is all about. Mm. I love that you brought that up. How would you suggest for somebody listening that's a teacher, educator, administrator, how would you suggest in a practical sense how to you know, not let those lessons and you know, experiences be diluted or just straight from a corporate office? What would, what would advice would you give them to make it more interactive, make it better for children coming up in, through grade school or whatever it may be? Yeah, well, there's a great phrase in education called developmental appropriateness, right? And so when we look at what is developmentally appropriate at an elementary school level, you know, maybe it's not about getting elected. Maybe it's about planting the seeds of service and learning. And yet, if you flash back to when you were in first grade or kindergarten, second grade, um, you know, you probably had a teacher that was really influential in your perspective of what leadership was all about. And they would have that line leader or the helping hand or the person of the day, student of the day. And when you think about all the things that you got to do when you were that special person, you know, they put your name on the whiteboard, right? Uh, there was a special uh, roles that you got to play. You always got to go first. 
And if something needed to be done, they would turn to you and say, could you go to the office and get this for me? And if it was a big job, they'd say, hey, could you bring your friends with you to go get that construction paper from the closet? And on the way back, you'd sneak an extra drink at the water fountain, right? Little perk on the side. Well, all those things were early impressions of what you thought leadership was. It was about you being special, more important, being designated by someone else to make decisions for everybody else, that you had access to power and privilege and position. You could bring your friends in on stuff, get extra perks on the side. I mean, that's not what leadership's all about. That might be what politics are all about, but it's not what leadership's all about. And so I think any educator who knows that developmental appropriateness for students, whether it's elementary, middle school, junior high school, even college, into emerging adulthood, there are certain things that are important at that age. And if we can nurture the lessons of leadership in that light, we might be more successful than just taking something off the shelf from the corporate world and trying to bring it to life in the education setting of a student. How have you been able to work with so many national nationally recognized organizations like the NFHS like Music for All NAFME and so many others how how have you been able to do that for a long period of time well i think a lot of it is my background as a music educator i mean i was always involved with music for all and bands of america uh, even as a student and then as a teacher and now as a clinician and a consultant so it's like coming home for me in that regard, you know, and music education had such an important stamp of influence. Um, even though today, probably only 20% of my calendar speaking and presenting and consulting is music related. 80% is just generic everybody else in the world. Um, whenever I get to hang out in the music world, I always feel like these, these are my friends. These are my family, right? And when I'm speaking outside the music world, I'm always amazed at an association meeting where someone will come up and go, hey, were you involved in music? <laughs> because the examples I use or something that I share resonated with them in a way that they knew I had to be a musician. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's really why. And my, my involvement with Drum Corps International as a clinician and serving on their board of directors was a privilege and an honor. And I continue to help work with all the drum majors across um, the DCI ecosystem every year uh, with Gene Montrostelli and Dan Atchison and it's just a treat to be able to come back home. Um, and certainly in Denver, it was a treat to hang out with all these performing arts educators from all over the country and, uh, and be in that spirit of what leadership is. Yeah, that was very, that was very fun. But uh, I love that you brought up bands and music and drummers and everything like that. So there's a big event coming up in November that you were especially involved in and that you play a key role in called the Future Music Educators Experience in Indianapolis, specifically for college students, if I have that correct. Can you tell me and the listeners more about that and why they should be excited about this? Yeah, in fact, uh, we're in our 14th year of doing this, and it's amazing that it has continued every August and every November at Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis, which, if you don't know as a listener, is one of the few professional indoor football stadiums designed specifically for marching music events. So everything from the large uh, tunnels that let you access the field to the backdrop that they drop in with a curtain to the acoustics and some of the seating arrangements, it, it's, a, it's a great place for marching music events. And we invite college music majors, undergraduate and graduate level to attend the semifinals at Bands of America in November and Drum Corner National in August as our guests for free. 
And they start the day with a bunch of marching music insiders and educators in roundtable Q&A sessions where they get to ask the question they would love to ask but can't ask their professor back home because their professor doesn't have that experience perhaps. And then they get to tour the stadium and then they get to watch all the performances in semifinals. And so, uh, yeah, it's been an, it's impressive because nine different uh, performing arts education organizations come together to help promote it across the music education landscape. And uh, this year in particular, it's a special coincidence that PASIC is having their international percussion conference and the same weekend. And so college students could come and see marching bands from across the country and participate in PASIC. All they have to do is get there, feed themselves, pay for gas, everything else is on us, and uh, it would be a great day to enjoy. When did you originally get involved in this? And how, how have you seen it help and build relationships within the music community with college students? Well, I think every college professor in the world knows deep down in their heart, they don't have the answers to everything for everything and everybody. And so, especially in the marching activity, which has evolved so drastically over the last 20 years, that giving the professors and their students a chance to see what high schools are actually doing all across the country is a really cool way to see a variety of ways of doing it. It's not that everyone should do it that way, it's just the ways that work for those communities. And so for a long time, we had a professor from the state of Wyoming who brought his entire marching band methods class to Indianapolis. They came in the night before because they had to fly and they would watch one of the bands rehearse who was in town like uh, Marian Catholic with Greg Bim and they'd see that rehearsal in the evening. And then the next day they spent it with us and seeing all those band performances and then they'd fly out the next day. And they actually got the college, the university, to kick in some funds so the students could attend. And the logic he used with the administration in Wyoming was, this is one of the few places on the planet our students can see marching bands from across the country in one place, in one time, and not get rained on or snowed on. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> uh, so lastly, Fran, please tell all the listeners out there how they can get involved, how they can sign up, um, what how they can tell college students about this, just all the pieces of information that they may need to get involved with this. Yeah, the simplest way is probably go to kickitin.com slash nafme, N-A-F-M-E, and that will share kind of an overview, lots of video testimonials, and the two places where you can register either for the August event or the November event, completely free and complimentary. Um, and your professors can join you too. So it's open to college music majors, undergraduate, graduate level, as well as their professors to come and see these amazing uh, marching performances in Lucas Oil Stadium every August and every November. Awesome, friend. Thank you so much for joining me today. It means a lot to me and the entire NFHS team. Are there any last thoughts before we wrap it up today? Now I'm excited to be able to uh, hang out with the performing arts folks. Uh, what you do and Kyle and James in your corner of the world there, uh, has been so monumental pre-COVID and beyond. And it's exciting to be able to work with you and be involved with your organization. Definitely. Likewise. Well, for all the listeners out there, please remember to leave a rating and review as always. Uh, even if you share this episode with, with one teacher, one coach, one administrator, it will go a long way for us. And make sure you sign up for the Future Music Educators Experience 
uh, you will not regret it. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope we catch you next time on the stage.